Open your Bible to the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible. And it is in a contest of people's perception of the most boring books of the Bible. It's in the lead, for sure. I mean, you hear the word Deuteronomy and you say, <laughs> it's called Deuteronomy, number one. Its name is against it. It's the English name of the book. It uh, comes from a word, um, Deuteros, means uh, second. Namos means law. <laughs> Second law, that's not the original title in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it has a better title. Chabadarim means sour grapes. No, I'm kidding. It, it's, uh, it means uh, these are the words. Because Deuteronomy is actually a book of sermons, uh, preaching, passionate proclamation of God's word to God's people. And so we're going to just spend a little time in Deuteronomy this morning, and, and I hope to convince you of a few things, but one of those things is that Deuteronomy is well worth your attention. It is not a boring book. It is a riveting uh, story of God's work among a new generation, and it has so much to teach us. I just taught through Deuteronomy last year and found it to be so rich and so beneficial. We're going to get our message from this fifth book of the Bible uh, in chapter 10, so you can make your way over there. And while you do that, let me talk to the, the freshmen up in here. How many of you are going into high school this year? You're starting your freshman year upcoming. Look at you. Let's hear it for these, these brave souls, brave souls, uh, freshmen. There's been many names given to them over the years, uh, some more antiquated, but all of them uh, entertaining to me. Frosh is one, uh, sometimes called greeny uh, or newbie, freshies or fresh fish or fresh meat or just freshmen. Is there any I'm missing? Forever. That's a good one, Frefre. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm grateful that the gender-neutral synonym isn't used very often, fresh person. Uh, it's weird and rare, thankfully. Whatever you call these novices of student life, uh, they all have something in common. Uh, they have to go to school like a week early, usually, and receive something, or maybe a couple days early, receive something called freshman what? Orientation. You remember it well. It's a cultural rite of passage, this freshman orientation. It's a time to come to school when it's still supposed to be summer. No other students have to come. And it's a time to communicate to these uh, new people expectations. These new students are welcomed to one of the most unwelcoming places on earth, school, and these young minds uh, have many questions. They haven't been to a school of this size and scope and velocity before, and they look at it and they have basic questions like, where are my classes? This is like a vast city. Its walls are up unto the heavens. And I've seen high schoolers before. I'm like an eighth grader moving into ninth grade, and some of them have mustaches. And so it can be very intimidating. And so they give you a map and they put a sign on you that says, if found, return to room, whatever. And, <laughs> and they tell you, you know, that there's always a, a part that gives you some profound educational secrets like, you know, to succeed in high school, make sure you pay attention in class. And you're like, I am so glad I'm here for that. Thank you for that information. 
They tell you things like, you know, you, you should actually do your homework to find academic success. Okay, thanks for telling me that. That's really, really helpful. They tell you to study for tests, to write papers according to the instructions. They communicate all these expectations. It's deep stuff. And you learn the rules. You learn what's expected of you and the penalties if you break those rules. They let you know what time school starts, where your first class is, about passing periods and tardy bells. And you learn stuff that soon you will know by heart. The expectations and the penalties sometimes they make you even sign a contract, you know, with all the warnings involved after three tardies, you get a warning. After six tardies, you get detention. After 10 tardies, you get a letter sent to your uh, house. And after 22 tardies, you have to go to prison. So all those are are the codes and the expectations and the rules and the laws of high school. Uh, But many of those codes, expectations, and rules are not found in orientation, but learned on the streets, yo. On the mean streets of the highways and byways, called the hallways of the high school, you learn things like, what happens if I make eye contact with an upperclassman? What are some practical ways I can prevent being taped to a pole? Important freshman questions. Where should I sit at lunch to not have a chocolate milk dumped on my head? Some schools do something incredibly mean. They give all incoming freshmen a senior buddy. Great, now one of them knows your name. (laughs) So he can torture you all the more. And from these senior buddies and from these upperclassmen, you learn the oral traditions, the unwritten rules, like you're supposed to bow before the seniors and give them your lunch money and hold down the water fountain button while they drink and... You know, things like that. You learn quickly if you carry, you know, a big stack of books, they will be forcefully removed by a junior's foot kicking them out of your arms. And just, just, you know, how to live in high school. And eventually you learn what's expected of you and you survive your freshman year to become a sophomore. A word literally translated meaning idiot. So, (laughs) no, seriously, that's what it means. So... We all understand that life gets better as you kind of find your way. And I don't mean to scare the incoming freshmen, just to warn them. And we understand that it's better when you know what's expected of you. It's better that you know where you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to live in a new place. And that is really what the book of Deuteronomy is about. The book of Deuteronomy is a book that communicates expectations. You see... Before we can just dive into Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, it might be helpful to explain uh, where we've been and and where we're going. Uh, You may remember how the Bible starts. God creates two people. Uh, Their names are? Good. You guys are like biblical scholars. Really, really good. Uh, So Adam, uh, he lives in God's garden. Uh, He and his wife are uh, plunged into sin and The human race forever is stained by sin and influenced by sin and alienated from God. And it doesn't take very many generations before uh, the earth is in such a bad place. The people are, are so sinful and so rebellious that God says that he regrets he even made the earth. But he finds a righteous man and his family and decides to destroy the whole world but rescue this one righteous man. What was his name? Noah. 
Noah and his family, eight persons in all, are rescued from this global judgment of God in the worldwide cataclysmic flood. And from that boat they emerge after God has brought the sun out and the waters begin to recede and you see that God makes a promise to Noah, that he will never destroy the earth by water again, but Noah's job is to fill the earth and to worship God. And Noah offers a sacrifice, and his family worships God, but not very many generations go by until the whole human race once again has descended far, far into rebellion and sin. Uh, There are no one really worshiping God anymore at this point. And so God finds a man and calls a man who was not a worshiper of God, a man that he chose and a man that he would promise to give land to and a people to and to be a blessing to the entire world, an old man with no children that he promises will have this great race come from him. And his name was Abraham. And so God calls Abraham, and Abraham has Isaac. And uh, instead of uh, having to sacrifice Isaac, God rescues Isaac in that great moment. And Isaac, in turn, has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. What were their names? Just, just kidding. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know either. And, but one of those sons, you know, was sort of a big deal. His brothers turn on him, they throw him in a pit, he gets bought by some slave traders, they take him to Egypt, he gets a place of prominence through God's work in his life, he becomes a significant man in Egypt. Uh, Joseph is the right-hand man, the ruler over so much of the most important parts of Pharaoh's kingdom, and Joseph thrives there, and uh, a famine comes to the land, and his brothers come back, and uh, in this great moment, the book of Genesis ends with the people of Israel moving to Egypt and receiving from Joseph, who'd been perfectly appointed for this time, a place to live called Goshen, the most beautiful, abundant land, and they thrive there. They move there, and there's 70 of them, and after a few generations, they are this massive multitude of people that are receiving the blessing that God promised to their forefather Abraham. They are filling this world, and they are thriving, and they are blessed, and they are doing very well in Egypt, but several pharaohs later, nobody remembers. Nobody remembers who Joseph was. And so the pharaoh begins to treat the people of Israel as slaves. The slaves find great success. The slaves, even the slaves, are doing quite well for themselves. Their agriculture is blessed. Their families are blessed. There are so many of them that this new nasty pharaoh says, there are too many, they could overtake us, let's kill all their sons. And in this dark moment in Israelite history, a slaughter of the innocents begins. And one mom puts her baby in a little basket covered with pitch and tar so that it would float and prayerfully and safely sends him down the Nile River. That little baby's name was Moses, the prince of Egypt. You saw the cartoon. And 
Moses finds a place in Pharaoh's family by the amazing sovereignty of God. And Moses is raised as the prince of Egypt and receives the privilege of both a Hebrew education from his mother who becomes his nurse and from the wisdom of the Egyptians. So he learns all about Egyptian life and what it means to be a a prince in Pharaoh's house. But all the while there is a drawing in his heart towards his heritage as a Hebrew man. He looks like a Hebrew. He knows that deep within, he is one of them. And when he sees injustice committed against one of his brothers, he strikes out and murders an Egyptian soldier. 40 years in Midian, Moses would spend. His first 40 years as a prince of Egypt. His second 40 years in the wilderness, tending sheep. He finds a wife. He receives a a manifestation of God's glory at the burning bush. And, And God says to Moses that he's calling him for a purpose to go to Pharaoh and to ask Pharaoh the big question, let my... You're right, people go. And so Moses, with all his boldness, goes to Pharaoh uh, with his uh, associate and says to him, speech impediment. And Pharaoh says, no. Ten plagues later, Pharaoh says, yes. Moses and the millions of Israelites set out on their great journey to receive a land from God and finally taste the fulfillment of that promise that God made to Abraham so long before. They get the law from God at Sinai on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, which are given in Exodus, but listed again in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Ten words from God that teach them how to live. You know the Ten Commandments? Do you know them? You want to learn them? Let's do it real fast. We got time. Ready? Commandment number one. Go like this. One. Ready? There's only one God. Say it. There's only one God. It's the first commandment. Commandment two. Go like this. Do not worship idols. See, it's like a little dude worshiping an idol, bowing down. Okay, great. Commandment two. Do it. Do it. Do not worship idols. Yeah, you like it? Commandment three. You ready for this? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Three. Okay? You like it? Four. Looks like a pillow, doesn't it? Kind of. Well, honor the Sabbath as a day of rest. Come on, honor it with me. Ten dudes just fell asleep. Stop it. It is not the Sabbath yet. Uh, My favorite and yours as well. Five. Honor your father and your mother. How about six? Six. God gave a sixth commandment. Thou shalt not murder. Like it? It's true. Thou shalt not murder. It's like a little thummy knife thing. Do it with me. Come on. Thou shalt not murder. Thank you. Seven. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Or as I tried to teach my kids this, they said, thou shalt not commit a grocery. I guess it's good they don't understand. But the seventh commandment is don't commit adultery. It's mom and dad stay together. Right? Uh, God invented marriage, and marriage is good. 
Mom and dad stay together. Uh, the eighth commandment, uh, thou shall not steal. Yep, just grab those three things, you know. You want to steal three things, not two things. That's how you remember the difference. I want to steal three things. So <laughs> thou shall not steal. And uh, what about nine, uh, do not bear false witness. Yep, do not bear false witness. And 10, thou shalt not covet. Covet. See, those are total coveting. It's 10. Covet. There you go. You know the Ten Commandments. Good job, guys. Good job. God gave them the Ten Commandments. He teaches them what it means to be his covenant people because God's people always have requirements. They are called to be a holy people, a separate people, a different people. The Egyptians did not have those ten rules. They worshipped all kinds of gods. Adultery, commonplace among them, multiple uh, wives. This was not a world of lots of regulations. And these ten rules were distinct and made God's people distinct. And so they went to the brink of the promised land, right to the edge, the Jordan River, the wilderness and Egypt behind them, and here this land that would be named after their forefather Israel, a, a land that was rich and blessed, full of milk and honey. And so they send ten spies in to check it out, and they are all ten amazed with the uh, quality and beauty of the land. They go in and they see grapes that are really good grapes. And uh, they, I mean, we're talking grapes. Grape. Have a grape. <laughs> Grapes, delicious giant strings of grapes they carry on big sticks. And they see these beautiful cities like they had not seen before that are just ready for them to move into and inhabit. And all these cultivated fields that have agriculture that they weren't even familiar with, really great growing techniques. I mean, rich, rich lands and, and homes prepared for them. And eight of the spies agree with these two spies that are eating huge grapes and saying, let's do this. God gave us the land. They agree. They say, that's so true. It's really a nice land. If you really don't mind getting squished by giant monstrous people. And they put fear in the hearts of the people and they persuaded the people not to enter the land, to not trust God, to not obey him. The one who revealed himself to Moses, rescued them from Egypt, provided for them with magical manna bread and water and quails in the wilderness when there was nothing to eat, cared for all these people, led them right to the brink, right to the cusp of the promised land. And they say, hmm. We agree with those guys. We can't, we can't trust. We can't trust them. We agree with the 10 spies. We reject the two spies. We're out. And so God sent them into the wilderness. He judged them. For 40 years, they would wander in the wilderness. Moses, at, at this point, was 80 years old. And this was his destiny, to, to go into the land, to lead the people, and now a 40-year sentence. Why 40 years? So that the generation that didn't believe would die. You don't want to trust God? Then you'll die in the wilderness. That's what they learned the hard way. And so they just bounce around the wilderness in kind of a, do they still have screensavers? You, you, you're not that old. Screensaver mode, boink, boink. Boink, 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 and they just aimlessly wander 40 years until the generation is dead. And the book of Deuteronomy is at the end of those 40 years. 
That whole generation, all the parents and the grandparents are dead. Only those under the age of 20 who approached the land the first time, who are now uh, 60 and under, everyone is 60 and under, there's this huge gap, and then there's Moses, he's still around, and the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, Moses is 120 years old. But he's still got good vision and a strong back. Moses did P90X, I think. (laughs) And Moses is their leader. There's a huge gap of people who don't exist anymore, age 60 to 120. There's three really old dudes, and there's this younger generation. And they have seen rebellion and apostasy and disobedience to God in the, in the wilderness, but now they're ready for a second chance. And they come once again to the Jordan River. And before they enter, they're on the plains of Moab, and their leader, godly, old, really old Moses, stands up, and he preaches to them. He preaches a series of sermons to prepare them for a new life. He preaches a series of sermons to teach them lessons that their parents would not obey. To teach them how to live in this new land, how to receive the promises of God. You see, they were still called to be a holy, distinct, separate, godly, righteous people. And Moses needed to explain that to them. They had a hard work in front of them. They were to go to war against the inhabitants of these Canaanite cities. The cities belonged to Israel. God's judgment promised on these godless, wicked people who had attacked and killed God's people generations before was now at its fullness. The inhabitants of this land sacrificed their children, worshipped demons. They were an evil people awaiting the judgment of God and God would use Israel to put his judgment on them and to remove them from the land and to give the land to Israel but Israel needed to know what God expected of them he needed to know they needed to know exactly what God wanted for them all of history led to this moment and it was necessary that they understood Yahweh's requirements for them and that they learned those valuable lessons that comes from those who had gone before them and so those first chapters of Deuteronomy are a reminder of their journey in Exodus, and then the Ten Commandments are once again recited to them, and then they're taught about family worship, and they're taught uh, how to uh, continue to instill God's righteous ways to them, and when you get to chapter 10, you get an opportunity to hear the most significant part, and really a summary of the entire book of Deuteronomy in just a few short verses. So let me read it to you, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16, and it will answer the question, what does God expect of people who have received his grace? What does God expect of people who have received his grace? We, like them, are the recipients of God's grace. What does God expect of his people? Deuteronomy 10, verses 12 through 16. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven 
and the highest heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is this day. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. What a lesson. What a powerful and appropriate lesson. What a lesson that translates to our day so well. We have heard this week relentless reminders that God is holy, that we are not, but that we can be seen as righteous and as holy if we repent of our sins and take Christ as our Savior by faith. Then we too are participants and recipients of the holiness of God. We are accepted by God and embraced by God. But that isn't it. The Christian life isn't just the day that you get saved. The Christian life is every day thereafter. And it's a, it's a time that asks God, what is it that you want from me? And that's the question that Moses poses to Israel. Verse 12, now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? What are God's requirements? It's an excellent question. We'll call it the inquiry. The inquiry. That's the question. The question is, what does God want? Have you ever been confused about what God expects from you? Well, it's important to be reminded of the things that are most basic to the Christian life. The most basic things to God's people. And Moses asks the people, do you know what God expects from you? What are his great expectations? What does God require from you? This is another one of those ultimate kind of questions intended to provoke Israel. And I want to ask you, do you know what you're to do? If you've embraced Jesus, God's only means of salvation and forgiveness, as your Lord and Savior, now what? Now what are you to do? These people had received the grace of God. They had received God's favor and kindness. They had, like their father Abraham, embraced his promises by faith without even knowing all the stuff that we know about God's plan through Christ. Just with images and shadows in the sacrificial system, they had trusted God by faith, received God's unmerited favor, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, and now they were to respond to it. How? Well, the inquiry says that God requires something of us. Friend, young man, young woman, God requires something from you. If you are a Christian, God requires something from you. It's not a guideline. It's not a suggestion. It's a requirement. God demands of your life something. He's asking you something. And you can't afford to get this question wrong. This is all of theology and ethics and the book of Deuteronomy, the whole law, finding their summary in this answer. This why this is such an important question. What does God require of those who have received his grace? And the answer is a simple one. It's poignant. It's practical. It's five basic requirements. So the the inquiry, the question is, Uh, What does God require? Here's the simplicity, his answer. The simplicity. 
And this is true in every generation. It's applicable this morning at Point Loma as it was in Kadesh Barnea way back in the day. Five infinitives in this little passage. Verse 12, here's the first one. Ready for five things, simple things that God requires if you want to properly and appropriately respond to God's grace. Number one, to fear God. Verse 12, what does the Lord God require from you? But to fear the Lord your God. To fear the Lord your God. Responding to God's grace begins with a heart attitude. It means that we fear him. And this is a thoroughly biblical statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10 says. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, Proverbs 1.7. What is fear? Boom! That's fear. It's to be afraid. It is to be taken aback, to be in awe of, to be frightened by. It also has a positive element, a reverential awe for God, a trembling, a reverence for God expressed in submission to his will. It's to take God seriously. It's to be so aware of God in your daily life, so aware of God that there's no other way to live, to respond in worship, trust, and commitment. People often try to explain the sense of those verses away by saying that fear is just, you know, a devotion, awe and reverence. And uh, the fear of God includes awe and reverence, but it does not exclude literal holy terror. If God were here right now in a physical manifestation, if his Shekinah glory was shown to you, it would melt your face off. You would fall down on the ground before him. You and I need to be genuinely afraid of God, not in a way that drives us away from him, but in a way that causes us to regard him as holy. Isaiah 8.13, it's the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. He shall be your fear. He shall be your dread. I don't know how big of a fraidy cat you are, but there's fraidy cats all over And there is psychologists who diagnose different kinds of fear all over the place. Photophobia, what is it? The fear of light, you smart, smart high schoolers. How about acclurophobia? Nobody's taken their Latin. Cats. Is the fear of cats the same as the hatred of cats? Because I have the hatred of cats. Nasty creatures. How about enterophobia, fear of flowers? How about ablutophobia, the fear of bathing, freshman dudes? <laughs> what about palatophobia, the fear of bald people? <laughs> Not really that scary, just kind of weird. There's lots of fears in our world, but what's missing in our world is a, a fear of God. I mean, Christians love to talk about God's unconditional love. It's more rare that you hear about God's holiness, that God cannot tolerate sin, that God will and must judge sin by his furious and terrible wrath. Over and over again in Deuteronomy, God commands his people not to be afraid. They're facing this huge challenge of of living their life for God and, and conquering the things God's called them to conquer. And he tells them repeatedly, do not be afraid. But the prerequisite to not being afraid is that God also and simultaneously commands us all to fear him. And you don't understand God if you do not fear him. That's the launching point for your response to God's grace. 
Paul said this in Romans. Note the kindness and severity of God. Severity, harshness towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. I'm a big Narnia nerd. I love reading. I'm reading it to my kids right now. I, 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 when I was a kid, I read and reread the Chronicles of Narnia. And I love in The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe when the kids have just entered into this winter land that is always winter and never Christmas. And they go to uh, the Beaver's house, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are a strange and odd little couple. Not just because they're beavers, just because they're weird. And if you haven't read it, you dig it, try it, you'll like it. And they find out that Aslan is on the move. And this is a good thing, according to the beavers. And they don't know who Aslan is. They find out that he is the creator of Narnia and eventually promised to be the redeemer of this land and that he's a lion. And little Lucy says, a lion? doesn't sound quite safe. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? He's a lion. Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. To fear God is to recognize his ferocity, that he is a dangerous God because of his altogether holiness. You know, Christians used to be called, not Christians, but God-fearing people, God-fearers. And we can't appreciate God's love until we've learned to fear him. We can't know his love apart from some knowledge of his wrath. And you can say, well, that's like an Old Testament thing. We're grace people in the New Testament. But I tell you, if you believe that, you haven't read your Bible. The people of Deuteronomy were recipients of God's grace. And in the New Testament, we're called to perfect holiness in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7, 1. To fear God is to not be presumptuous. To fear God is to prevent sin from entering into your life. Fear wakes you up. Fear causes you to look within and without, wisely walking and, and carefully stepping through your life. Fear is a, a way to keep you from falling away from God. Fear is a, a place of, of path, of sturdy walking. Fear is a shield for you in this life as you're barraged by sin and temptation. The fear of God is what we need. It's a stronghold and a security for every Christian. Do you know why a dad would choose to abandon his family and start a new one? You could say it's because of lust, it's because of psychological abnormalities, it's because of social malfeasance and deals, it's because of all these reasons. You know why that happens? It's because that man does not fear God. The fear of God keeps you from evil. That man does not take God seriously. Let me bring it here. Do you know why a teenager rebels against his parents? Because it's not fair, man. I'm oppressed. Got a Che Guevara shirt on. Che. You'll get that in college. Why do you rebel against your parents? A teenager rebels against his parents because he doesn't fear God. 
He takes God lightly. To fear God is the first response to God's grace. What's the second response? To follow God. Look at what the text says. To walk in all his ways. It's the second requirement. A heart attitude of fear manifests itself in our daily walk with the Lord. We are to order our steps in all his ways. We walk in all his ways. Walking is a metaphor all throughout the Bible, speaking of how you live your life, your daily conduct. It's the favorite metaphor of the Apostle Paul. It's one foot in front of the other. The Christian life is most often called a walk, more than it's called a race or a struggle or a fight, though it's called all those things. More often than anything else, your Christian life is equated to a walk. Kind of an ordinary thing, right? That's because the Christian life is a daily deal. It's step by step. It's one day after the other. It's waking up in the morning and telling yourself, self, let's follow Jesus today. Self, let's obey God today. Let's fear the Lord and follow him. Let's walk in his ways. Our daily behavior, our outward conduct, our words, deeds, actions, everything we do, our lifestyle, all our ways, the entirety of our life is to be lived for the glory of God. Uh, The word ways here is the word derek. Anybody named derek? It's a Hebrew word. means path. Your, Your name is place to walk. It's a path, a road, a way, a journey, and that's what life is like. Life is a path, and the life of those who respond properly to God's grace is a life that walks after God. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says it like this, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Your calling is your salvation. God's uh, summoning you to himself, and you are to walk accordingly. Deuteronomy 6, the Israelites were to instruct their children as they walked down the road. Their lifestyle was to be centered around God and his kingdom, around Jesus and, and what he had been, what he had done and, and what he had accomplished. We were to walk a path that was moving us towards heaven every day in spite of every difficulty, every temptation, every trial. We are to walk with God. We get our marching orders from him and we follow after him and we hear the Bible say, be holy as I am holy. God requires that we be holy, we follow him, and we walk in all his ways. Number three, we're to fear God, we're to follow God, and number three, we're to love God. Look what the text says, to walk in all his ways and love him. God places this command in the center of this list, and rightfully so. Moses chooses a word usually reserved for marital love, like love. There's a heart. It's a love word. Moses chose this word to describe our appropriate response to God. We are to love God. Again, the emphasis is back on the heart. Fear God, follow God, love God. It's a simple statement. It's already explained in chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Love for God surpasses every other love that this world offers. It's why Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, you cannot follow me unless you hate your own father and mother and brother and sister and your own life. So you go home from camp and they say, hey, hop in the car, put your gross sleeping bag in a trash bag because it smells like mold and cheese and get in the back seat and mom and dad say, hey, how was camp? And you say, I learned to hate you. You do brother poke in the eye. Is that what that means? And Jesus said, Luke 14, 26, hate your own father and mother and brother and sister and your own life. What's it mean? 
Well, it's a, it's a statement, a radical statement to call you to love God. To have a love for God so supreme that every other love by comparison would be like hate. Yes, you're to honor and love your parents, obviously. But your love for God is to be so much higher than that, so much deeper than that, so much more eternal and lasting than that, that every other affection of your heart, every other love of your heart looks like hate compared to your love for God. Does that make sense? The emphasis is on a love for God so supreme, so lasting, so resilient. The affections, not just a, I have decided to love God, but a passionate kind of word. So friend, I have to ask you a question. Do you love God? Do you love God? Do you? I mean, be honest with your own heart today. I mean, it would be really easy for you to confess your affection or love for her. You know, that dreamy girl that you met at Regen. You're going to say yo on Facebook. There are some dudes, there are some dudes looking at a dude right now. <laughs> dude met a girl at the party last night. Oh, teenage heartthrob, sunflower romance. We will send you home. And the thing is, is it'd be easy to admit to your own self, she is the object of my desire. I will train my tongue to be Shakespeare and to compose poems. And I will teach her my gentlemanly ways. And I will court her and woo her. <laughs> and you'd admit it. Look, I, I'm in love. So you know what it's like. You know the concept. You know what heart affection is. You know those things that are most precious to you, those people that are most precious to you. The question is, do you love God? Do you love his word? Is he the delight of your heart? Love is a passionate word, a word of desire, of emotion, a lover's love. Do you wholeheartedly love God? Because God loves his people. Deuteronomy 7, 7. He chose Israel because he loved Israel. For God so loved the world. If you are a Christian, you are the object and recipient of the covenant love of God. Yes, he demands our allegiance. Yes, he demands our loyalty. But he also demands our devotion, our delight. Deuteronomy is a book full of love. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. Deuteronomy 7.9. Uh, is, keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Deuteronomy 11.1, 1, you shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge. Deuteronomy 11.13, uh, you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 13.3, God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God. Every single command of obedience in the book of Deuteronomy is linked to a heartfelt affection and love. If you love me, Jesus said, then you will obey my commandments. You see, the obedience to Jesus is rooted in love for Jesus. And if you love God, you'll be cold to everything that is not God in comparison to your love for God. That's what makes a book like Deuteronomy so relevant, not because you're part of an extended migration of ultimate settlement of a large tribe in the ancient Near East from one place to another. You're not. But because their God is the same God as our God. And he revealed himself 
And Deuteronomy teaches us that the heart of what God requires from us is love for him. Friend, do you love God? Number four, look what the text says. To love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Fear, follow, love, and serve from the heart. This is the external evidence of heart attitude of love for God. And to serve the Lord is a reasonable thing. But notice where the service flows from. With all your heart and with all your soul, it says. With all your heart and with all your soul, verse 12. And that's what makes service so difficult. God is not looking for those who accomplish his expectations in an empty and robotic manner. This passage makes it clear that this duty to serve God must flow from desire. Pastors have to do this thing called ordination. It's like uh, the, the, when you become a cop, you have to do a test, you know, or a series of tests where you have to shoot bad guys or targets of bad guys and be able to jump over a fence and do 400 push-ups, stuff like that, Right? The pastor one's exactly like that, except with no physical requirements whatsoever. And it's called ordination. And you usually have to sit before uh, some elders or group of pastors and answer a bunch of Bible questions, ministry questions. They like poke you until you cry and give up. And when I was getting ordained, ordained, kind of a funny word, I had heard that Pastor MacArthur was hardcore. And that he would hurt you and get you. And in a moment of self-abasement, I asked him to be on my ordination council. And I said, Pastor John, would you be on my ordination council? He's like, nobody asks me anymore. And I'm like, it's because everyone says you kill them. (laughs) And so, but I, I signed up and we sat in his office. Two of the guys, Pastor John they start throwing me, kind of the other guys are throwing me some easy questions. And, you know, I'm imagining it. I'm, th- I'm thinking, okay, they're going to throw me easy questions. Then Pastor John is going to turn into a lion and tear me in half. <laughs> With Bible questions. So before, like a couple days before the ordination, I call him on the phone. And I say, Pastor, I, so uh, just trying to get ready for ordination by like memorizing the whole Bible. So... You want to kind of give me an idea of what you're looking for? And he's like, don't worry about it. It's going to be a breeze. I'm just going to ask you questions like, you know, theological questions, like what's a saity? And I'm like, cool. <laughs> he's like, you know what a saity is, right? I, I remember hearing that word. And I can Google it on my phone. You know a saity. Um, I don't know a saity. Well, you have some studying to do. Okay, I'm on it. I'll see you on next week at the thing. A saity. <laughs> Friends, I know what it is now. It didn't then. <laughs> and I barely passed my ordination. A saity comes from the Latin. Latin. And it means, uh, it has the word self in it. Seity is simply God's self-existence. And when we're talking about serving the Lord from heart and soul, it doesn't mean God needs our help. God's self-existence, his aseity, is found in Acts 17.25. 
God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God isn't needy. God didn't create the world because he was lonely and God doesn't call you to serve him because he doesn't have any hands. The way we serve God is in the strength that he provides because God is the one who needs nothing. He is self-existent. Why then do you serve God? Well, it makes no sense if your reason is anything but love for God. Service implies subservience. It implies ownership. We serve God because he owns us. He's our master. He's our Lord. We are his happy slaves. And this makes sense since we're made by God and despite our rebellion, he has purchased us at the cost of his own son. And so we serve the Lord with gladness. The fifth and final requirement is to obey. Look what the verse says. To keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. We are called to fear. We are called to follow. We are called to love. We are called to serve from the heart. And we are called to obey. The law of God is not harsh and unloving. The requirements of God do not mean that God is against us. It means that God is for us. Being obedient to God is not legalism. Being obedient to God is the proper response to God's grace. And so the psalmist would say, oh, how I love your law. I love your requirements because they teach me how to live. God's way is the better way. It's the wiser way. You follow God, you will experience a good life blessed by God. And that doesn't mean that you'll have a saline Mustang. That means that you will have the favor and pleasure of God on your life, regardless of what possessions you have. To obey God is to know that you don't live by tyrannical rules designed for your pain. But to obey God is to know that God is showing you what it means to love him and serve him and live for him. And he's giving you a little taste of a perfect life that you will experience in heaven. And so in spite of all the difficulties you'll face in this life, car crashes and cancer and the loss of loved ones and financial trials and heartbreak and everything else, you will be in your allegiance and obedience to God, a happy man, a happy woman, because you have followed God's ways. God's ways, your obedience to his ways, our careful, conscientious, and constant attention to God's imperatives on our lives are not blind obedience or mechanical obligation to do any of this necessitates that our knowledge of God is fearing him, walking after him, serving him, loving him and observing and obeying what his word commands of us. And then we get to where we were last night. We get another reminder that apart from God's grace, this is impossible. And so this is it. We saw inquiry, inquiry, the simplicity, and now the impossibility. Look at these last few verses and we'll be done. Verse 13, it's all for your good. In verse 14, behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the highest heaven, the earth and all that's in it. God owns you, friend. 
Verse 15, yet on your fathers and did the love set his and did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples. It is this day. 16. So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Moses concludes his summary of God's five requirements with a focus on the sovereignty of God. That it is impossible, students, to please God on our own. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So he says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. This whole section is these resounding superlatives that give us a statement of unexpected action by God and a concluding command to respond appropriately. And this whole section here is a portrait of the sovereignty of God. Listen to verse 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God who does not show partiality, nor does he take a bribe. He executes justice to the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien. You were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you swear by his name. He is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Back to verse 16. Circumcise your heart and stay in your neck no longer. God has reminded these people of his greatness over all creation, his ownership of them and of everything. But ultimately, your response to God's grace has to start with your receiving God's grace. And your receiving God's grace does not depend on what you do. It is ultimately dependent on what God does. You cannot earn the grace of God. You cannot pray a magic prayer and become a Christian by your own will. You must call out to God and God must save you. God must choose you. God must reconcile you. God must must give you regeneration. God must grant you repentance before you can fear, before you can follow, before you can love God, before you can serve God, before you can obey God. You hear these words, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. It's simply to say that something has to happen inside of you. God wants you to change And he wants your heart open to him. To circumcise your heart is to plead with God to circumcise it. It was a ritual in the ancient Near East that involved some surgery, right? Well, the circumcision of the heart is really, really a calling out to God to do that work. How do you do it? We need heart surgeons in the room. Nobody's doing like an internship in heart surgery in high school. Heart surgeons are awesome. They can rip your chest open with a bone saw, crack that baby open and clean out all the plaque in there and get it pumping again or replace it with a baboon heart. They can do all kinds of cool stuff. But there is no heart surgeon who could rip himself open and give himself a new heart. And so the call to circumcise your heart, to have a new, a changed, a renewed heart, is to call on God to do just that. 
To be stiff-necked is to be unbending, unwilling to do what one must. You are called to repent of your sin and to call out to God to change your heart. God loves us. God has chosen us. And he can and must change us. And what God asks, he also supplies. The God who demands our hearts not rebel against him is the God who sets his love on us before we're born. We can obey when he gives us hearts to obey him. So I urge you, if you are still unconverted, if you are still dead in your trespasses and sins, call out to God and then walk in these ways of simple obedience in response to God's grace. Repent of your sin. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised one who conquered death and sin when he died on the cross for sinners and received the acceptance of God in his sacrifice when God rose him from the grave victoriously. He guaranteed our eternal life when he was resurrected. If you are overwhelmed by the commands of God, listen to the voice of Jesus. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take upon my yoke and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. That's God's great expectation, that you would respond rightly to his grace. Father, thank you for your grace. And may we serve you, God, with sincerity of heart. May we not delay, but may we come to you in faith and repentance and then follow after you in obedience for all the days of our lives. Amen.